You can go ahead and have a seat as we continue. My name is Brandon, one of the pastors here. It's a privilege to welcome you to Gospel City Church. Go ahead and grab your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9, and we're closing out the story of Noah. But I want to encourage you not to rush ahead in your thinking, to not miss the significance of this man's life to the story of God. And this passage of scripture specifically is not a, a mistake or not something that uh, is just kind of random. We believe in 1 Timothy where it says all scripture is useful. And so the Lord is all over this in our lives to bring it to life through the Holy Spirit and to change our thinking uh, about this world and the way we live even now. And to fully understand all that this passage has for us and its implications, we can't disregard the significance of where the world is going right after God has hit the reset button. He's established a covenant with this righteous man named Noah. And as Noah steps off the ark with his family and the new dawn of humanity is beginning, Genesis chapter 9 is going to give us a bizarre little story for two reasons, I believe. One, to show us that the promised Messiah, the one who is coming to crush the serpent's head, is not Noah. And two, to give us an understanding of where we all come from and how God's promise is preserved through imperfect people throughout generations. The title of today's message is, Let's Try This Again. As a father of three young kids, I have found myself saying that more often than I would care to admit because uh, my kids don't always learn everything they need to learn on the first try. Whether it's something as simple as learning to ride a bike, my kids have fallen off the bike and you say, okay, get up, let's try this again. Whether it's a lesson in their schoolwork, I, I know you didn't figure that out right away, it's okay, let's try this again. Or a simple lesson in kindness, hey, let's try this again. Should you punch your brother in the head if he's breathing too close to you? Right? You got to keep giving them opportunities. My kids are a gospel reminder to me that I don't always learn what I need to learn on the first try. It takes repeated instruction and repeated opportunities for things to get through my thick, hard heartedness and to get into my soul. And the Lord wants for us the same things we might want for our children. I don't want robotic responses, I want heartfelt desire as the Lord changes our hearts. So let's lean in together to this passage. And it'd be easy for us to be looking at this little scenario of Noah and his family walking off the ark and we're saying, okay guys, let's try this again. Don't sin, just don't mess it up. Don't let something as silly as fruit ruin everything. Well, let's read together in chapter nine, starting in verse 18. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah woke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, 
He said, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. So we're gonna focus in and unpack those verses and then near the end of our time together, we'll take a look at how chapter 10 of Genesis starts to set up what is coming in chapter 11 and then next week, Pastor Micah will close our series in the beginning by tying in chapter 11 to all the stories that we've heard so far as this first section of Genesis draws to a close. But would you pray with me that the Lord would speak to us through his word for us this morning. Lord, we come to these verses and it would be easy to just kind of be puzzled and to move on, to think what a random story, what does this have to do with anything? But Lord, we do, we trust your word to reprove and rebuke and exhort and correct and teach. And so Lord, we ask that as we pick apart this story, we would see ourselves in it and we would see first and foremost the redemptive story of a God who loves us enough despite our imperfections, despite our sin, to chase us down and to give us your son, Jesus. So Lord, we ask for your word to do the work of God in Jesus' name, amen. Five observations from these verses this morning. The first thing I want you to see is that there is a hopeful future in front of Noah and his family. A hopeful future. Reminder, the Lord has just hit the reset button. We are Starting over, we're trying this again, and Noah and his family are the ones that have been ordained and called to be the new leaders of humanity. And so it says that his sons went forth from the ark. They were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And these three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. And so the Lord is saying everything that is happening from this point on, Noah, your family is the beginning of it all. We know from earlier in chapter 9 that God told Noah and his sons to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So the Lord is repeating the command that he gave to Adam and Eve in the garden. All the corruption has been washed away. The slate is clean. The future is bright for this family. These eight people who were spared, they were saved from the wrath of God against the sons of disobedience. So there is a a hopeful future, an expectation that they can walk in the promises of God, but there had to be a nervousness residing in Noah and his family, a desire to avoid the destruction that they just witnessed at all costs, a a pressure to step into this this command to rule the earth and subdue it while recognizing they, they will fall short. They don't have it within themselves to do all that is required with them. They, they understand God's covenant is the thing that is allowing them to flourish in this life. And if fear of consequence was enough to keep mankind from sinning, these eight people had all the reason in the universe. They just watched the floodwaters wipe out everything they had ever known. They just walked off the ark onto ground that was still damp from God's judgment. Can you imagine the first time that it rained after the ark? Just like, what did you do? Is it gonna stop, right? Just a fear, like, did we mess this up somehow? And then the rain would stop 
and a rainbow would appear and they'd be reminded, oh, it's God keeping this covenant. It's not on us. We can trust in the Lord. The hopeful future in front of them. Moses is making a few key notations as he's documenting this story of the beginning of time. He's pointing out a few key things I want us to see there in verse 18. It says, the sons were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Usually authors would write in a birth order. But Japheth is the firstborn. Shem is the secondborn. And we know Ham is the youngest. So he's designating that Shem and Ham are significant players in the story we're about to read. And we'll see that the divide between those two is significant to the rest of human history. It also notates that Ham was the father of Canaan. You don't see any other sons listed in that moment. This is important to the story, and it's going to be repeated a couple of times. Our author's, again, appealing to his readers, as the Israelites would have been very curious, where Canaan originated from. We'll see why in a little bit. And then verse 19, from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed, right? I have a footnote in my Bible that says the whole earth was populated. So we can understand that every human alive at this point has Noah's family to thank. And the same is true today. If you are living and breathing, you can look back and thank Noah and his family for being your great ancestors. And that point is significant. I just want to pause there for a moment that if we are Bible-believing followers of Christ, then this simple verse and the repeat of it in chapter 10, verse 32, is enough for us to destroy any sense of racism or prejudice that exists. If you think that there is somehow a superior race or people group on this planet then you are negating the fact that every single person can trace their lineage back to Noah and his family. What does that mean? What about all the the differences that we see? What about the people in far-reaching countries that look nothing like us or, or have no physical similarities as us? What I'm saying is that all the genetic code For every variation, all skin colors, all physical characteristics, all eye shapes, noses, eye colors, hair colors, etc. All the necessary genetic coding was in Adam and Eve and thus in Noah and his family. Scientists have estimated that if two people, in theory, were able to produce children that numbered the atoms in the universe, not one of them would be exactly like another. That's fascinating, which means that in the very beginning, the genetic makeup of each of us was, first and foremost, mankind. And from there, things were separated. Meaning that while we are different, we are all of the same blood. There is one race under God, and we all belong to it. Noah's family here is following the Lord's command to be fruitful and multiply And there's a responsibility for them that they would continue to pour that out into the generations underneath them. That they would serve the Lord, but they would teach their families to do the same. But unfortunately, very quickly, mankind will once again fall short, starting in a garden. See next that there is a humiliating failure. Verse 20 
verse 20, Noah began to be a man of the soil. That's an interesting phrase. It sounds like something as simple as he started to be a farmer, but there is a, a title attached to this where he is now the, the new Adam. He is over the land and he is going to uh, be able to draw fruit from the land, making him Lord of the soil, Lord of the earth. So his new title he steps into and he planted a vineyard. Some believe this could be the first vineyard ever planted, but more so it is signifying that some of the curse has been lifted from the ground and he's actually able to produce good crops like fruit. And then it says he drank of the wine, it became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Now it needs to be stated that Noah's failure, his sin, was not that he drank of the wine. It was not that he planted a vineyard. Noah's failure came when he became drunk, lost control of his actions, and passed out naked in his tent. The drinking of wine is not condemned in the Bible. When God gave us vineyards, he gave us something to delight in. Judges 9.13 says that wine cheers God and men. Psalm 104 says, wine makes man's heart glad. In the millennial kingdom, it says that the vine will yield its fruit, Zechariah 8, and the Lord will provide a feast of aged wine, Isaiah 25. In fact, we know Jesus himself drank wine. He turns water into wine, and it's the best wine the dinner host had ever tasted. Some of you are like, it was probably a cabaret. I don't know. Is that, is that one? All right. We also know Jesus, he drank wine with his disciples, and he, he proclaimed that we're going to drink wine again in my father's kingdom. If drinking wine was the problem, if drinking wine was the sin, none of that would be true, and the Lord would be only opening bottles of Welch's grape juice. Rather, it is again man taking something that the Lord created to be a, a blessing and turning it into a curse. This goes for most things in your life, especially alcohol. I would argue that if you're hearing this and you're thinking, yeah, the Bible doesn't condemn drinking, that's right, that's, that's helpful to me, then you're probably in danger of misusing it if you're looking for something to defend it. That comes from personal experience. Take out wine, take out alcohol, whatever, and insert whatever thing the Lord through his common grace has allowed us to enjoy. And if you're starting to manipulate that to be, if I don't have that thing, I'm missing something from my life, then that is now an idol in your life. The things I want so badly to be exonerated from about feeling bad about are usually the things I need to have a constant pulse on and question, is this good for me? so that it doesn't become an idol. Because while scripture does not condemn drinking, it also says that wine is a mocker and beer is a brawler. And in Proverbs, Solomon commands Lemuel the king that wine is not good for kings lest they forget what they have decreed. So yes, it is a good thing, but there is a danger and a curse waiting for those who take it too far. The Chinese have a proverb that says, first the man takes a drink then the drink takes a drink, then the drink takes the man. 
This is what happens to Noah. He chooses to keep drinking wine past the point of anything beneficial or good for him and to a point where he becomes so outside of himself that he gets stark naked and winds up in his tent asleep. He's lucky it wasn't in a more prominent place where others saw his shame, but nonetheless, his failure doesn't end with a drunken evening. It continues with a broken family. Verse 22, and Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. This verse has much speculation around it. People want the full story. They want to read between the lines. Why does Ham come upon his passed out naked father? It's odd that he would be going to his father's tent at all. And then from there, why is he going to tell his brothers about it? Well, as to Ham's intention, I would argue it was probably something as simple as checking on his dad who was not answering from outside his tent. And as he opens his tent and sees him in this state, in his heart, in that moment, he decides to dishonor his father and go and inform his older brothers about the situation. Now, the Commandment had not been given at this point to honor your father and mother, but it was very much a stated thing that the head of the family was deserving of honor from their offspring, from their sons. And so Ham chooses the wrong thing in this moment. Some scholars even believe that Ham, as the youngest, was looking for a way to claim more of an inheritance over the family as he would have got the the least amount compared to his two older brothers. And so this is his moment to discredit his father and take ownership, leadership, authority over the family. In his heart, he states that he doesn't want to honor his father, but rather goes and mocks him to his brothers. And Shem and Japheth have a decision to make in this moment. There could have been some pressure from the family bonds. You think of if you grew up with siblings and if your sibling came to you and said, you'll never guess what I just saw. And informs you of some shameful thing or a sin that someone else committed. It'd be easy to jump into that and have camaraderie around the thing that you're sharing together. We can understand this even in our life. Here's probably a a moment in your life, maybe even this week, where someone came to you with some juicy gossip that they just wanted to share. Some knowledge about some other person, maybe even a family member or a close friend or somebody that you work with that they wanted to just let you know how awful that person is or put them down, put them in their place and that pull to be in the inner circle, to be glad that they're not talking about you and you can have some unity around the misfortune of another person. But we know the reality is is that if someone's willing to come and talk to you about another person, they're probably talking about you to another person. But the pull is there to be pulled in and to not honor one another in our hearts. I'm sure Shem and Japheth faced that moment. And so instead of running to the tent to see it and join in the mocking with their younger brother, they go to honor their father Noah, by covering his humiliation. Verse 23, then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. They did what Ham should have done. 
Seeing that their father made a mistake, he messed up and choosing to love their father enough to cover the sin in that moment so that it didn't continue to affect other people, that their father's shame was not increased. This simple act of carefully walking backward, just think of them in the tent, trying their best to, to walk backwards so they didn't accidentally see anything, laying the garment over their father, not shaking him awake violent, violently, saying, what are you doing? What's wrong with you? We're just covering in that moment and walking away. It reminds me of 1 Peter 4. It says, love covers a multitude of sins. Love doesn't excuse sin. Love doesn't forgive sins. We, only God can forgive sin, but we can extend forgiveness to other. But this idea of covering sin, meaning that, when you find out the shame of someone else or something else, that the mistake they have made, do you choose to expose that to everyone around you? To let, I knew that's how that person was. You've now built a case. You've time-stamped them, and that's how you see them every time you look at them. I knew that's the kind of person they were. That, that makes total sense that that happened. Are you willing to cover it in a moment? Be like, you know, we're not, I'm not perfect either. I got my own stuff. I'm going to choose to love you. I'm going to think the best of you in this moment. And I'm going to go to you in the spirit of Matthew 18. I'm going to go directly to you and have that conversation. If Ham had been a good son, he would have waited till his father awoke, went to him like a man, and said, Dad, Dad what are you doing? Why, why is, what's going on? Can we talk about this? Seems like such a small event in the grand scheme of what we've witnessed in the world. Noah trips up, goes too far, makes a mistake. It leads to... This incident between his sons, like, Noah, just own up to it. Let's just, let's just move on. Call the family meeting, own your stuff, say you're sorry, and let's go forward. Sounds like you and Ham need to hash some things out. But obviously, this is the culmination of a broken family that will continue to fracture from this point on. Next, we see that Noah gives a, a bleak forecast over his youngest son. Verse 24. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him. Now, awoke from his wine, that's just speaking again to the influence the drink had over him. This wasn't like, you know, he was like, oh, that was maybe one glass too many and then went and laid down. Like he was gone, gone from the wine. And waking up from his drunken haze, he would have naturally probably looked and said, why is this garment over me? I didn't put this there. And he goes up to his firstborn son, Japheth, and, and pulls Shem in and says, you get, what happened last night? And like any good older brothers would do, they rat out Ham. That makes a lot of sense to me. They'd be gladly offering the information. Well, Ham told us this, and so we took care of it. And when Noah hears this, he he sees a harsh future in front of his youngest son. Verse 25, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. But wait, I thought Ham was the problem. Why is, why is Canaan getting the curse, right? Even in this patriarchal society before Levitical laws in place, there's an understanding of the, the sins of the father shall not visit the sons. And so why is Canaan having to pay for what his father has done? 
It's important to understand that Noah is more so, he's declaring a prophecy over his grandchildren and future generations. We know that Canaan would be the forefather of the Canaanites, who were a significant people in biblical history. And that the Israelites, as they traveled and, and took over lands, they would often take and control the land of Canaan. And as Moses is authoring Genesis, the Israelites are wandering in the wilderness, and it's believed that the first time they, they read Genesis out loud to the, the Israelites, they were preparing to cross the Jordan River and take the promised land, which was the land of Canaan. And as, as a part of that decree to take it, the Lord commanded them to kill every Canaanite in the land. And so it helps us understand that Israel would eventually be the fulfillment of God's judgment on these people. You have only to read in Leviticus some of the laws that were in place to counteract the deeds of the Canaanite people. Deplorable, despicable acts. This wicked generation would not just end with Canaan and Ham. It would continue on and multiply again and again until the Lord uses his sovereign people to wipe them out. And so Noah is simply giving a prophecy that will come to fruition in later generations. That they will be a servant to the people of Israel. They're, they are cursed people. It's hard because didn't we just get done with people sinning and curses being poured out? When Adam and Eve take the fruit it leads to them being naked and ashamed. Here in Genesis 9, Noah's drinking the fruit lead, leads to him being naked and ashamed. In Genesis 3, the Lord finds out what happened from Adam and Eve and the blame is placed on the serpent. In Genesis 9, Noah finds out what happens and the blame is placed on Canaan. In Genesis 3, the Lord declares that the offspring of the serpent is cursed and he will be lower than the offspring of the woman, eventually resulting in the offspring of the woman crushing the serpent's head. And here in Genesis 9, Noah declares that the offspring of Ham will be cursed and lower than the offspring of his brothers, eventually resulting in the offspring of his brothers crushing the head of Canaan. Let's try this again. This is a bleak forecast for the future of humanity. But praise be to God that Noah is not done speaking. This is only recorded speech in scripture. In verse 26, we're gonna to start to see a strong finish for his family. He also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. It's an interesting word choice. And worth noting that Noah didn't bless Shem. He blessed the God of Shem. This is Noah giving all the glory to God for what he would do through Shem's life. Recognizing that even this simple righteous act that Shem portrayed of covering the shame of Noah was because of the spirit of God in Shem's life. Shem wasn't bringing anything to the table more than anybody else. It was the grace of God in his life that would allow great things to happen in him and through him. We know that Shem is the ancestor of Abraham, which results in the Israelite people 
eventually resulting in the birth of Jesus, the promised Messiah. Continue, friends, to see the thread being woven through the entire Bible that the Lord will preserve his promise through imperfect people. That in the first book of the Bible, despite all the sin and depravity that we've already seen, God continues to form his rescue plan for his humanity. His favor rested on Noah, which would then translate to resting on Shem, the second born of a broken family. It will eventually rest upon a young girl named Mary, who will give birth to a savior, Jesus Christ, causing angels to sing glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom his favor rests. Noah also gives this blessing over Japheth. Verse 27, may God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. There's a little play on words here. It's Japheth in the Hebrew is very close to the meaning to enlarge. The people, the descendants of Japheth would spread much farther than that of his brothers, even reaching into what we know as Asia Minor and Europe. They were people who would multiply and then move to a different region. And these descendants would actually carry down and eventually be known as the Gentiles. And if you're sitting in this room today, the majority of us have much to be thankful for that there was a blessing over Japheth's life to allow the Gentiles to come and to know God by dwelling in the tents of Shem, meaning that the Gentiles historically had not nearly the amount of spiritual access that the Jewish people did. In fact, the Jewish people were called to be a light to the Gentiles, but they often disregarded that mantle. And in Romans 2, Paul calls them out and says that the, the name of God is blaspheming among the Gentiles because of the Jews. But the idea was that the spiritual access through Shem's family would be bestowed upon Japheth's family because they would dwell in the same tent, that the spiritual access of the Israelites would be bestowed and, and extended to the Gentiles. Praise be to God that we sit here today living in the fruit of that. So the table is, is set. Noah has declared, this, this is what's going to happen. This is where things are going to go. And the last two verses of chapter 9 let us know that after the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. We have every reason to believe that Noah continued to be a man who found favor in the eyes of the Lord. He was righteous. That this one little blip, this odd story, this false step, this mistake did not define his legacy, did not define his life. Let that be an encouragement to you that if you are in Christ, if you are righteous in Christ, your sin is not the end of your story. But as you confess and repent and continue to follow the Lord, the Lord can continue to use you despite your sin and you can know what it's like to walk as a man and a woman close to the Lord. After all we've been through with Noah, the established new Adam, the, the result is the same. Sin is still present. There are blessings, but there are also curses. And Noah gets the same line written in his story that everyone else does. Noah lived and he died. 
And as you start to read into chapter 10, I want you to see that while Noah was a significant character in the story God is writing, the story does not end because Noah ends. Noah is not the main character by any means. Significant, yes, but when his life ends, his legacy continues. We're not going to dig into every verse of chapter 10, but it's, it's not your normal genealogy. It's referred to as the table of nations, describing how in chapter 9, verse 19, the, from these, the people of the earth were dispersed. It's giving us kind of a map and we're plotting out where these nations go to. It's not chronological or complete, meaning it doesn't put it all in exact order of, of when these people and these nations were birthed, but it was also not containing every single nation that existed at that time. Rather, it compiles a list of 70 nations. Some of the Greek manuscripts have it as 72 nations that would spread across the whole world and continue to fracture in their understanding of Elohim. God. You have Shem's line who will continue to follow the Lord closely. You have Japheth who is enlarging and growing all across but will continue to be separated from all that God has for them. And then you have Ham and his descendants through the Canaanites that will be a wicked and deprived generation. 70 nations, 72 nations spread across the world that one day will need to hear the message that the Savior has finally come. I want you to see something cool in your Bible. Turn over to Luke chapter 10. In my study this week, the Lord just kind of brought this little nugget. It's one thing for me to say it. I like, would love for you to see it in your own Bible. In Luke chapter 10, the heading in my Bible says, Jesus sends out the 72... Verse 1, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. We use verse 2 a lot to signify our commission and mission of reaching the nations of knowing that the work is not done, that we lift up our eyes and the, the fields are ripe for harvest, but the Lord is searching for those who would go out and declare that the Savior has been born, that the Messiah has come, and you can find peace in life in him. And just as I was reading this week, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others. There's a footnote in my Bible. It says, some manuscripts, 70. And the Lord just in that moment reminded me that he has never wasted a number in the Bible. That I, I fully believe that Jesus, when he chooses that number of people, it was to correlate to the table of nations that there were 70, 72 nations sent out from that moment. And he's reminded of where he was at the beginning of time in Genesis chapter 10, when the world is continuing to splinter and fracture away from the original design. And the Lord is saying, I need people to go out into that nation and declare that I'm here. I'm here to bring everyone back into the family. He's never missed a moment. Everything ties together. The Lord is so good to fulfill every promise 
and every declaration in Jesus Christ. But this, Genesis chapter 10, this this is the legacy of Noah and his family. That from them would come the rest of the world, but with sin in the world, there was no stopping the spread of it. Chapter 10 is a historical and geographical list, but it's also a graph of spiritual decline. That we would continue to move farther and farther away, that from one man comes a broken and divided world. And as Noah's story ends, we're thankful for his strong finish, but we know it's not the end of the story. He's completed all the roles that God had called him to. One author writes it like this. By the end of the story, Noah has been promoted into three new roles. First, after saving the lives of all animals, he has become Lord over the animals and God has given him animals as his food. Second, for his obedience and offering to God, the curse is lifted from the ground, allowing him to plant a vineyard and expect fruit. And finally, he's been made judge over other men, pronouncing a curse and blessings. But there's one notable aspect to the curse Noah hasn't reversed. There is no tree of life in this garden. In spite of all of Noah's obedience, man is still under death. He still has no tree of life, and so the genealogy of death continues. Yes, Noah was a new Adam, but he was not the last Adam He had a strong finish, but it was not the finished work that we needed. We'll continue to see figures rise and fall throughout the story of God's people, and we'd be tempted to say, all right, let's try this again with each new possibility. But the reality is nothing will work until Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says this, that the first Adam became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. The same is true in your life. You can try to make it work on your own, in your own strength. You can grit your teeth and say, let's try this again and do a little bit better. And eventually that will run dry and you'll find yourself in the exact same spot you were before. We just need to admit it, friends. We're lousy saviors. We need someone better. And that someone is Jesus Christ. And in Jesus, you can find life. In Jesus Your failures and your mistakes and your sins are not the definition of your story. In Jesus, your story doesn't just go, and then they died. It says, and then they were welcomed into the kingdom of God because their name was written in the book of life. While Noah brought temporary relief from the curse, as a second Adam, Jesus Christ brings eternal relief as the last and final Adam. On the cross, Jesus did not say, I hope this works. He said, it is finished. All the toiling, all the striving, all the trying is done. It's complete in me. So we put our hope in Jesus' finished work on the cross that through his blood, we would have peace with God, finding true rest from our toil like Noah could never offer. Do you remember what Noah's name means? means rest. The hope is that he would provide the rest needed for God's people. And we can see that while his story has ended, the Lord is not done with his legacy 
and continues on and our hope is placed in the Messiah that would be born, bringing peace by the blood of his cross. Would you pray with me? Lord, in these few verses, we are reminded of our depravity. We are reminded of our insufficiency. But praise be to God that we can look ahead. Thank you, Lord, that while we are dust and to dust we shall return, it was your breath in us that brought us true life. And from the dawn of time, we have been trying and hoping to get back to the garden to restore the relationship that we once had. And even after a cataclysmic flood of the entire world, sin still existed. And so Lord, we, we surrender in this moment of our trying. We declare that it's never gonna be enough. Lord, I pray that we would find hope in this life, not in the things that we can do, not in the words that we offer, not in the songs that we sing, not in the, the actions that we perform to somehow make ourselves feel a certain way, but rather at the heart of hearts, Lord, we would know that there is nothing we can do to bridge the divide except for you. Lord Jesus, you are enough. And Lord, you created this world with the intent on saving it from the beginning. And we say thank you. How great is our God that we get to be a part of this story of redemption and salvation and know what true love is. Your love covering our sin, not because of what we've done, but only because of who you are. Lord, we love you and we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand and respond.